right, First Kings chapter 1, First Kings chapter 1. The whole context of the book of First Kings is covenants and character. The concept of looking at God's covenant to Israel, His faithfulness to them, Israel's unfaithfulness to their side of the covenant. And then, of course, God's covenant with David and how He is faithful to it, even though Israel and David's line is not faithful to Him. And then character. We're looking and studying lots of different individuals as we're going through the book of 1 Kings. And so tonight, we're going to be covering David and Bathsheba and Solomon and Adonijah and some other characters that we will examine their character. So at this point, David is dying, but he is not dead yet. But right under his nose, his oldest surviving son, Adonijah, plans to take advantage of David's weakness by seizing the right of succession and wiping out any who oppose him. And so God uses two people to rouse King David to faithfully discharge his duties before God, even though David's at the end of his race. And so may David's response to that rousing encourage us to be those who develop this character trait of being determined to finish well too. So chapter one, we're gonna pick it up in verse 11. We covered the first 10 verses last week. It mentions here, wherefore, Nathan spoke unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. The wherefore is what came before. And what came before is that he, Nathan the prophet, Bathsheba, and Solomon, and others who were very close to David and loyal to him, they were not invited to Adonijah's feast that he was holding where he would proclaim himself king. Adonijah believes that since he is the oldest surviving son of David, he has a legitimate claim to the throne. But he's going about it in a shady way. He announces it at this private party that he's the next king, and he has Joab, the general of Israel's armies. He has his support, and Abiathar, one of the two high priests, he has his support. And he hopes that with these two dignitaries there supporting him when he makes this announcement to get the rest of the attendees behind him so that taking the throne won't be a difficult task. But make no mistake, Adonijah still needs to take the throne because David's not giving it to him. And so if Adonijah can get enough support at this party to do so, then Bathsheba, Nathan, uh, Solomon, and all the other individuals who've supported David, their death warrants are, are all but signed. And so Nathan decides it's time to have a serious conversation with King David. And he starts by offering to help Bathsheba. And so wherefore Nathan spoke unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, does reign? And David, our Lord, knows it not. Now therefore come, let me, I pray you, give you counsel that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. He says, do you not know that Adonijah does reign? Adonijah wasn't king yet, but he'd been acting like a king for a while. We read about that in the first 10 verses. And during that time, David had not critiqued Adonijah. This party, however, was thrown without David's knowledge. And so Nathan's thought is if, if they don't act now, that fact that he's not actually king yet or David doesn't know won't matter when the party's over. And so he says, now therefore, let me give you counsel. The word there, a phrase, means to tell someone what they should plan to do. It is possible that Bathsheba and Solomon, because he mentions that what you might do, that you might save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. It's very possible that Bathsheba and Solomon were clueless to what was going on. It's possible they knew but didn't know what to do. Either way, it's good that Nathan was around, isn't it? 
It's good that someone was there who was a support system for them who could speak into their lives. And you know, before we even dig in too deep tonight, do you have support systems like this in your life? Or is it just you and your family? If you don't, things might seem fine for now, but they are not. Because none of us have control over the decisions other people make. Very often, for example, very often we'll get folks, we live in a community that has a lot of financial issues in this direct area. And when folks come in, one of the things that we will discuss with them is, hey, where are your support systems? Where do you go to church? Where is your family? Where are the friendships? Where are the relationships? And of course, most of the time they don't exist. They've either burned bridges with family or they don't, have not plugged into a church. They don't have any support systems. And very frequently, there'll be folks who will come here, and they'll come on a Sunday morning, but they don't plug in, they don't build relationships, and then they're struggling. And everything's fine until it's not, right? That's how life is. Everything's fine until it's not. And the problem is, is when it's fine, we think we're in control. But that's an illusion because we never have control over the decisions other people make. And so going it alone is unwise, and it's prideful in light of that because we can't control everything that occurs to us and to our family. So how do you get support systems? Well, you got to get involved. You got to connect with other believers. You got to build relationships. Friends don't let friends sink when the waters rise. I never have to worry about what's going to happen to me because I know there's tons of people who I'm connected to that love me and are not going to let me sink. And many of you probably share that same experience. But no one can help you when they don't even know the waters in your life are rising. It's important to have people like Nathan in your life. Well, what's his plan? Verse 13. He says, go and get you into the king, unto King David and say unto him, did not you, my lord, O king, swear unto your handmaid, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. Why then does Adonijah reign? Now, it's interesting, Nathan brings up this promise that David made to Bathsheba, but the Bible doesn't record David's promise to Bathsheba. We're just learning it through Nathan here. So David has apparently done it in a public enough way that not just Bathsheba, but others know about it, Nathan included. And so he says, you need to go in and you need to remind David that his duty as the king of Israel isn't done just because he's dying. It's not over yet. He has allowed this to happen under his nose yet again, And now he needs to do something about his failure to act. I say yet again because one lesson that David never seemed to learn in the Bible was about being a faithful father. Like you look at David and we can say two things we don't want to follow David's example. David is a husband and David is a dad. David was a bad dad. and He was a bad husband most of the time. Those are not areas where we want to follow his example. There's many other areas we do want to follow his example. Whereas David seems to have gotten the whole marriage thing under control later in life and getting himself under control, he never seems to have been able to be the dad who can speak into his kids' lives. He so often just kind of let things go. And Proverbs 13, 24 has a really pointed warning about a parent who does that. In Proverbs 13, 24, it's a, an old adage that's used often, but it comes from the Scripture, and it says, he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him, King James says, betimes. The word betimes, it means to be early at a task, to be earnest in a task. He that chastens his son often 
he loves him. He, you know, the one that does that loves him, and he does it. He gets early to the task. I know the temptation for me as a dad is to not do something when I should. And then what happens is, is either when people around me are getting irritated by my child's behavior, or now I'm finally irritated enough to do something, then I step in. That is not discipline. That is not training. That's not parenting. This word betimes, it's used of seeking eagerly for food when you're hungry, or sometimes it's used for seeking the Lord. David says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. This is the same idea as when it comes to the task of our parenting. I cannot say I love my child if I'm unwilling to take the time required to parent them. And training a child takes serious quantities of time, right? It takes a lot of time. And so I ask you tonight, are you involved in your children's lives? Or do you only get involved when their behavior has reached a tipping point? It's often too late to get the true point across when you only act out of frustration. I've had to learn over the years, thanks to my wife's help, that when your kids, particularly when they hit those teen years or the preteen years, when they, they start doing things that just internally your blood just starts to boil. And I've had to recognize that I need to go and have a conversation immediately when we start seeing certain kinds of behavior and say, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about this. Hey, you just said that to your mom. Like, why did you think that was okay? Like, what, what, what went through your mind that you thought it was okay to address her like that? Not, not upset, just calm and just asking an honest question, provoking them to think about it. And I would say 95 out of 100 times, like, oh, I wasn't really thinking about that. So then you follow it up and you're like, okay, so why did you think it was okay to just speak without thinking about what you're going to say, especially to your mom? I guess I, I didn't think. Okay, does that concern you? Like, are you personally concerned that that's not an important thing about when you open your mouth, what comes out of it? And you ask these probing questions with your kids that are designed not to get them to listen to you, but to get them to listen to the Lord. Because in that conversation, what I'm, I'm, I'm telling them is, are you convicted by this? Like, are you bothered by this? What are you going to do about this? That's frequently a question that I would ask my kids. It's like, well, what's your plan to deal with the fact that you clearly don't have a care about what comes out of your mouth? And of course, you know, sometimes they got the bad attitude and like, I don't know. And, I, and at that point, I say, well, I don't think that's a good answer. That's so what I want you to do is I want you to spend a little bit of time with the Lord and tell him, I don't know, and then see what he says back. And then we'll come talk about that. These are the things that, we, that they take time, right? Like when you see that and you're sitting down and you're tired and you just got home from work and you're relaxing or you just got done with dinner and you're relaxing and you, you hear the comment and you're like, Ugh, but you don't do anything. What happens is, is eventually if it keeps going, then we're like, okay, enough. It's like in, in that Pixar movie, you know, the foot is down. Often if we get to a place where we have to put the foot down, it's already too late to really train and communicate with our kids what needs to be done. Now, going in to remind David of his duty as king and as a dad, that's just part one of Nathan's plan. Part two is in verse 14, and he says, behold, check this out. While you're still talking with the king, I will come in after you, and I will confirm your words. Now, we read that, and it's tempting to kind of think, oh, Nathan, he's going to manipulate David. 
Nathan isn't trying to be sneaky. He's not trying to be manipulative. Everything we've learned about him in the Scripture should not cause us to assume that. This is a man of great character. So what he is doing here is he's just assuring Bathsheba that he will have her back because it's not cool for Bathsheba to just come in and go, I don't like the way you're parenting or I don't like the way you're doing being a king. She may be his wife, but she's one of a bunch of wives and she doesn't live with David. So she's got to approach David like a normal subject, which would be frightening. I'd like to re-implement that in my home. Just kidding, just kidding, totally kidding. I usually have to ask an audience with the queen. Also kidding there. David is still the highest power in the land, but Nathan's saying, listen, two witnesses to Adonijah's actions and two people reminding David of his promise, that brings a weight of authority. I got your back in this, so I will come in and I will confirm it. So the idea here is, and it's beautiful because this is not going to be Bathsheba or Nathan or both of them throwing a temper tantrum because they didn't get what they wanted. This would be two people bringing a legitimate complaint because it appears that the king has either forgotten or violated his word or he's been negligent. And so, verse 15, here we go. And Bathsheba went in unto the king into the chamber, and the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king, and the king said, what do you want? It kind of gives us a little bit of context here. Uh, It says that she goes into the chamber. This would be private rooms that usually included the personal bedroom. David, at this point, it mentions he's very old. He's so feeble that he couldn't leave his private rooms anymore. And then we see that Abishag, we learned about her last week, that she is there ministering, which means to serve as a nurse. Abishag here is mentioned as being present when Bathsheba enters because Abishag, Bathsheba, and Adonijah are going to interact again later in 1 Kings. So it's just kind of notifying us she's still around, she's still involved. And the idea here is that she's part of David's harem, so Bathsheba and Abishag's membership in David's harem, that's also important in that future interaction. So it's just telling us this because it's going to matter in the future. Once it's mentioned that Abishag is still around, we get right back to the action. Verse 15, it says that, or 16, it says Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. Again, she might be David's wife, but they're not sharing living quarters. If she wants to see David, she's got to come the same way any other subject comes to see David. Being married to the king was not the same thing as you being married to your king. It's even possible that Bathsheba hadn't even seen David in quite some time, given his physical condition. And plus, Bathsheba's not here on a personal level only. She's here seeking an audience with her king about a grievance. Now, when David recognizes immediately that this is an official thing by her bowing down, he asks, what do you want? What's your request? Verse 17, and she said unto him, my Lord... You swear by the Lord your God unto your handmaid, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigns. And now, my lord the king, you do not know it. And he has slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance. He's called all the sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon your servant has he not called. Bathsheba reminds him, You made a solemn promise to me. This wasn't something David said in passing. He goes, yeah, I think Solomon would make a good king, honey. This was something that David had made a solemn promise. 
by the Lord. He made an official statement to her at some point, even invoking the name of the Lord, to show how serious he was about this decision. And so he says, Adonijah now reigns, and you do not know it. What's interesting here is basically her complaint isn't so much that that that's going on. Her complaint is, you promised that he would sit as king upon your throne. In other words, you didn't just promise me that you'd say he'd be the king after you. You promised you had set him up as king while you still had a throne, while you were still alive in order to ensure a smooth transition. You promised this, but you haven't acted on it. And now because of that negligence, someone else has acted in defiance of your promise. All of this has happened right under your nose, David, and now the entire nation is waiting to see what their king will do about it. Look at verse 20. And thou, my Lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon you, that you should tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord the king after him. Otherwise, it shall come to pass when my Lord the king shall sleep with his fathers that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. If you don't do what you said, and if you don't do something about this in the eyes of everyone then we will be considered treasonous. The word offenders here, it means sinners, wicked people, those who are guilty of violating a standard. If David does nothing, then his inaction is going to cause the nation to think, well, David didn't actually promise them anything. They made that up when he was weak to seize power for themselves. And that'll just make it one more easy step for Adonijah to have them executed when he assumes the throne. Bathsheba's argument is clear and her request is clear. My life and Solomon's life and the lives of anyone who has supported what you promised hang in the balance. You need to do something. Now, when she finishes her argument, it says here, verse 22, and lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So the reason he comes in is when she finishes her argument, Nathan asked to be admitted to the king. Now, because Bathsheba is not a member of David's royal council like Nathan is, she has to leave David's presence without an answer from him. Part of the plan, right? That's what Nathan had said to do. But it's still scary because she doesn't know what David's response is going to be yet. But she trusts Nathan's plan. Verse 22. Nathan comes in, verse 23, and they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet. And when he was come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. Again, Bathsheba and Nathan are not trying to bully a weak, dying man. They are humbly trying to stir David to finish well, to rouse him out of retirement and back to his responsibilities. While the Bible lays out the wisdom of saving so that you don't have to work yourself to death in your old age, retirement from work is not a biblical concept. The idea is that retirement is not in in a biblical idea is just to sit around sipping tea. While our service to God might change as we get older because of our physical capacities, we're never to retire from serving the Lord, doing the work that He's called us to do. And what's sad is most people in the Scripture don't do that. In fact, there are very few people who finish strong in the Bible. I could probably count them on two hands. Most begin to slack off as they enter the last stage of their life. And based on that, It is my personal belief that I don't think Christianity gets easier when you get older. I don't think it does. I believe it gets more difficult and that our greatest temptations come when our bodies are at the weakest. 
That's been my experience talking to saints who are older than me. And when you ask them and say, hey, is it you kind of kind of, you know, you're not doing this and that anymore. Is it easier? No, it's not. That's the consistent testimony. I've never heard somebody say, yeah, I'm 80 years old and walk with the Lord for 60 years and it's easier than ever. Never heard that from a saint. So because of that, we need to press into the Lord to the very end. We must be even more determined to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus the older we get. We must be determined to finish well because sometimes our hardest battles will come right before we break the tape right before the end of our race. It's fascinating when you look at things that have happened to people in their latter years in the Scripture. Jacob didn't lose Joseph until he was an old man and his children were grown. Daniel didn't face the lion's den until his 70s or 80s. Moses took Israel to the promised land in the latter third of his life. Paul faced imprisonment and execution not as a young believer but as an old man. And John was exiled to Patmos in his 80s. Those are some examples of men who finished well. Well, let's determine to be like them, amen? With whatever years God has given us on this earth to never retire spiritually, even if we retire from physical work. Verse 24, Nathan said, My Lord, O King, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? For he has gone down this day and has slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance. He's called all the king's sons, the captain of the host, Abiathar the priest, and behold, they eat and drink before him, and they say, God save Adonijah, King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, has he not invited? He didn't call them. Is this thing done by my Lord the King, and you have not showed it unto your servant who should sit on the throne of my Lord the King after him? Nathan is just being very honest with King David. He goes, did you you make a proclamation I'm unaware of as a close member of your your royal advisory team? Did you make a proclamation and not tell me? Nathan then confirms the words of Bathsheba, which David probably assumed as soon as Nathan was announced, he probably thought, "Uh uh-oh, She's not making stuff up. But rather than just give information, just confirm the information, Nathan questions the king's position on that information. He says, David, we've been through a ton together. You know what Adonijah's actions means for me and so many others who have been with you all these years. Did you leave me out because you agree with me or because you didn't know? I need to know you got to admire Nathan's courage. I mean, because when you couple this with when he confronted David about Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, you got to think to yourself, this guy's got some courage, man. We see people who do this later on in First and Second Kings, and they get killed by the king or imprisoned. you got to admire his courage. And yet, even though Nathan is courageous, never in any of these cases is he disrespectful to David. I find too often courage to confront sin is coupled with rudeness or unkindness. Or conversely, the other end of the spectrum, we back down from speaking the truth when we need to. I think we can learn a lot from Nathan on how to deal with someone who's not living like they should, being courageous, but also being respectful and kind. Well, Nathan's plan works. The words of him and Bathsheba do rouse David to action. Look at verse 28. It says, then King David answered and said, call me Bathsheba. Bring her back in. 
And she came into the king's presence and stood now before the king. There was no need to bow. She'd already made her request. Now she's going to hear his verdict. Verse 29, and the king swore and said, as the Lord lives that has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swore unto you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my place, even so will I certainly do this day. I, I love David. Because David is not a man who is flawless by any stretch. In fact, if you want to make the argument of who did worse deeds between David and Saul, certainly David probably qualifies for the worst deeds. But the Bible calls David a man after God's heart for a reason. We talked about this all through 2 Samuel when we were going through that. That David was a man who repented when God confronted him. And David, when he repented, he would jump into obedience when he turned around. He truly had a heart after the Lord. David's answer to Bathsheba here is just as serious when he first made the declaration to her. He says to her, it says, and the king swear and said, as the Lord lives. That's the strongest oath an Israeli could make. Because what they're saying is the only way I will break this promise is if God ceases to exist, which of course is impossible. That's how serious the oath is. And he says to her, as the Lord lives and has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swore unto you by the Lord God of Israel saying, Solomon will sit on the throne. He says, even so will I certainly do this day. David's promise is based upon the fact that he says God has brought me out of all distress, that God was always faithful to him. It's almost like he says to her, he says, God did not ever go back on his word to me. I will not go back on my word to him. And thus, even at death's door, even when David is far from at his best, he wants to please the Lord who deserved all of his life, even if there wasn't much life left to give. He wants to finish well. You know that last verse when I was at Merritt Island this morning, they sang, bless the Lord, 10,000 reasons. And that last verse of that song always chokes me up. And on that day when my strength is failing, when the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. I want to finish with my faith intact. I want to finish well. I want to love him to the end, even as I know he will love me to the end. David was a man who had many failures, but he clung to the Lord to the very end. And I think the Bible testifies that that is a life well lived, even though it could have been better lived. Finishing well, loving the Lord to the end, is a life well lived. Verse 30, even as I swear unto you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign, and he shall sit upon my throne, even so will I do. My promise today is just as strong as the one I made to you years ago. And that's about the best answer that Bathsheba and Nathan could have gotten. And so her response in verse 31 reflects her relief and her respect for David. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my Lord King David live forever. That's a phrase we hear a lot in the Bible, right? 
O king, live forever. Like Daniel, it comes out a lot. The people will come to see Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is just like, I want to kill everybody because they can't tell me my dream. And they're like, oh, king, live forever. Just tell us this. It's a phrase that the pagan nations threw out as an honorific all the time. And they just said it. They didn't say it with heartfelt meaning. It was just expected. That's what you have to do. But while the pagan nations used this honorific phrase constantly, it was only used by Israelites on occasions of special importance. Bathsheba's words here are not just formal court speech. Her and David shared a very intimate failure together, one that cost them a lot. And I can imagine one that surely created tension in their relationship. But these words show her respect for the man David had become after those failures. And what she's saying here is, David, you're a man of God, and I hope you continue to influence us forever. That's what true repentance can do to the relationships you've broken. And that's what finishing well can repair when you've started poorly. If you're here tonight and you're still breathing, then that means there's still time to finish well. You're not who you were when you made that failure. You don't have to stay who you are if you're battling failure now. You can repent. You can surrender to the Lord. You can be someone different by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can finish well. There's still time, if you're still breathing, to maximize the opportunities that God still places in front of you. Well, we get to verse 32, and David wastes no time in keeping his promise. Verse 32, and King David said, call me Zadok the priest. He says, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and so they all came before the king. These are three of the important men who were not involved in Adonijah's plots. And he says to them, Verse 33, the king said also unto them, take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon my son to ride upon my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. He says, I want you to take my servants. The word there refers to David's personal bodyguard, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. While this would leave David vulnerable, David doesn't care because he wanted those who were involved in this procession safely protected by those who were most loyal to him. And then he says, Take my own mule. I want you to take my own mule, the one that I ride, and bring him, Solomon. Cause Solomon to sit on it and bring him down to the Gihon. Commoners back then rode donkeys, kings rode mules. That's fascinating to me because the mule was actually a forbidden animal to breed in Israel. You weren't allowed to crossbreed like that in Israel. So I don't know how that kind of slipped in there, but it did. Remember Absalom when he's out fighting the battle? The reason that he dies, he's riding a mule and his hair gets caught and his beautiful, luxurious hair. That's why the Bible says it's a shame for a man to have. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. And our Pastor Chuck was asked about that. He goes, is it wrong for a man to have long hair? And he said, you know, the Bible says it's a shame. He goes, is it a sin? He goes, it's not a sin. It's just a shame. <laughs> I think we have to uh, consider some perspective, though. A long hair back then was probably quite longer than our short hair. Uh, our short hair back then was probably quite longer than our idea of short hair. I think the key idea is it's a shame for a woman to look like a man which is a relevant topic today. It is a shame for a woman, for, I'm sorry, a man to look like a woman. That should not be. 
Shame for a woman to look like a man, too. Gihon is a spring on the eastern slope of Mount Zion in the Kidron Valley, so not far from the palace. If you've been to Israel with us, you have walked in those tunnels where the Gihon flowed. It is an interesting journey down there, one I don't want to take again because it was very claustrophobic, but it was cool to do once. This valley, the reason that uh, David chooses it because it would be in plain sight of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, making Solomon's celebration, coronation as king, public in contrast to Adonijah's private party. Verse 34, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there at Gihon in the sight of all the city, anoint him there over Israel, and then blow with the trumpet and say, God save King Solomon. And then you shall come up after him that he may come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my stead, my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah." David might be tired and he might be physically weak and dying, but his mind is still sharp. By making Solomon's coronation over the edge public, he has completely outmaneuvered Adonijah. David's orders are going to leave no doubt as to who he's chosen to succeed him. No one in the city will question it. And we see here in verse 36 that all of his friends couldn't be more pleased. Verse 36, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and he said, amen, the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so he be he with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. I love this guy, Benaiah. It says, he said, amen. In other words, surely it is true. This has to be God's will. That's what he's saying. That's right. This has to be the right thing to do. And then his request is that the Lord God of my Lord, the King, say so too. May God approve of this plan. It sounds like a great plan, David. I think that's the Lord's will. And may God support and bless our actions this day. I really want to meet this Benaiah guy when I get to heaven because in the past we've learned about how courageous he was in 2 Samuel, how loyal he was to David and what a godly man he was. But here we see that spirituality at an even deeper level. And even though David says, this is the plan, he's like, I think that's a great plan. I hope God's in favor of it. I hope God blesses us in this endeavor because it sounds like it's the Lord. And you know, that means that in a sense, Benaiah is everything Joab could have been. Loyal to David, deeply loyal, but even more importantly, loyal to the Lord. And you know what? When you have a friend who's not just loyal to you, but they're loyal to the Lord, that's the best kind of friend you can have. It's why Joab lived and died very differently than this guy here. Because Joab may have been fiercely loyal to David, but he was not loyal to the Lord. Well, verse 38. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, that's David's personal bodyguard, they went down and they caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and they brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon and they blew the trumpet and all the people said, God save King Solomon. And then it says, verse 40, all the people came up afterward. They followed him afterward, and the people, they played with flutes, and they rejoiced with great joy, so much so that the earth was rent with the sound of them. Listen, there is a major difference between a few select special invitees sipping some wine and going, God save King Adonijah, and then chuckling to themselves, ha, 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 we're so secretive here. 
and all your guffaws about how you've outsmarted Solomon and everyone who supported him. There's a major difference between that and the entire population of Jerusalem shouting, God save King Solomon. The impact of one is not going to be the same as the impact of the other. The noise was so loud, it says, that the earth quaked or shook with their sound. And you know, that kind of noise travels a long way in a time without sound pollution. Verse 41, and Adonijah and all the priests that were with him, I was going to quit there, but man, I'm, I can't be done yet. I got more notes. I didn't think I'd make it this far. And Adonijah and all the guests that were with him heard it as they made an end of eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, wherefore is the noise of the city being in an uproar? Literally, why? What is the cause of this sound? Joab's not a fool. He knew this could not be good news. But while he's trying to get some answers, a new arrival comes to the feast. Verse 42, and while he yet spake, the word there means yet spake, the phrase means while he was going around. It means to continually go around. He's asking everybody, do you know of anything going on in the city? Do you know of anything going on in the city? He's trying desperately to figure out what's going on. But while he's doing that, it says here that Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came and Adonijah said unto him, come in for you are a valiant man and bring good tidings. And Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, verily our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and they have caused him to ride upon the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him in Gihon and they are come up from there rejoicing so that the city rang again. That is the noise that you have heard. This guy, Jonathan, he was one of the men who was sent as a messenger to David to inform him of Absalom's plans after David had to flee Jerusalem. He was also the same messenger who wanted to run to bring news of Absalom's death to King David. He had a reputation for being a brave man, willing and able to deliver clandestine messages. And so Adonijah thinks, ooh, this is our spy. This is good. We find out. And he wouldn't show up if he didn't have good news. So he says, tell me what's going on. It's not good news. Not good news at all. He says, David's anointed Solomon to be king. He uses the word, verily our Lord David has made Solomon king. Verse 43, he goes, every word I say is true. Now, we don't know if Adonijah, or not Adonijah, if uh, this guy Jonathan, the high priest's son, we don't know if he supports Adonijah's plans or not, but he's basically informing everyone present, y'all in the wrong place. This is not where you should be. And if David is still your king, he uses that phrase twice, David, our king. He uses it once up here in verse, let's see, 43, David, verily our Lord, King David, and then he does it again down further in verse 47, our Lord. Again, I don't know who he supports here, but he's saying to them, if David is still your king, You need to get to the right place, and it's not here. Verse 46, where's the right place? And also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. Any thought of putting Adonijah on the throne? Any plans? They're all moot now. You're too late. He's already sitting on the throne. And moreover, 
Oh, this is a big blow. The king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, God, make the name of Solomon better than your name and make his throne greater than your throne. And when David's receiving these guests who are pronouncing their support for Solomon and that they want God to make Solomon even greater than David, David's response is to bow down and worship the Lord. Like, if you're there at this dinner, this private party, Every time this guy opens his mouth, the news is getting worse. Any thoughts that any of them might have of stirring doubt as to David's will in the matter? No, he wanted Adonijah, that's gone. David has been receiving guests, and his response to their well wishes for Solomon's reign leaves no doubt as to David's will in the matter. This man who can't even leave his room is bowing in his bed. David couldn't get out of bed to prostrate himself before the Lord, but he mustered enough strength to prostrate himself in his bed. These final words, verse 48, thus also said the king, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which has given one to sit on my throne this day, my eyes even seeing it. These final words must have been daggers to the heart of everyone present. David, who hadn't made a public appearance in forever, now he had not only entertained well-wishers, but he's been seen worshiping God because this day had come. The reason that all of these important guests were present is because they were absolutely certain they could predict how Adonijah's actions would play out. But they were fools because they did not make life decisions based on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. They didn't take the Lord into the account. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In their own understanding, they thought, what could David do? He can't even leave his bed. But by making decisions based on their limited understanding, they didn't account for what God could do in David's life. It's the classic Moses blunder, only slightly less of a blunder than getting involved in a land war in Asia. If you understand the reference, you understand it. What's Moses' blunder? (laughs) Look left, look right, coast is clear, but forget to look up. Right? Kill the Egyptian. Is that how you do life? Do you fail to look left and right? Or do you look left and right but fail to look up? Do you lean on your own understanding or do you take God into account in all the possible paths that you can take? Well, Verse 49, and all the guests that were with Adonijah were afraid, and they rose up and went every man his way. The phrase, they were afraid, it means they trembled with terror, and for good reason. And all means all. That includes Joab and Abiathar. They're not there either anymore. Because every person who was there, including Joab and Abiathar, they knew that their absence from Solomon's coronation and their absence from getting on David's visitor list to say they, they're supporting Solomon, would tell a very ugly story in the eyes of the people that they didn't support Solomon. And so they all leave to figure out how they're going to save their own skin, which leaves Adonijah alone, a rebel king, without any supporters. Verse 50. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon. He arose and he went and he caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for lo, he has caught hold of the horns on the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. (laughs) 
Note, they do not mention that he fears God. They mention that he fears Solomon. And that was Adonijah's problem before today, and it's his problem still. He was greatly distressed. And yet, rather than take that distress to the Lord in repentance, he continues to lean on his own understanding, deciding his only hope is to take a drastic step. The altar mentioned here is the brass altar of sacrifice, the one that was outside the tabernacle where they would kill the animals, sprinkle the blood from there in other things. It had four horns on it, one in each corner of the square altar, and only the priests were usually allowed inside the tabernacle. But from the beginning of Israel's history, the altar was regarded as a place of refuge for criminals who deserve death. And by grasping the horns of the altar, the culprit would place themselves under the protection of God's grace, which wipes away sin and thereby abolishes punishment. But there was a catch. This was only allowed when you committed a crime by mistake never for a crime on purpose. In Exodus 21, 14, it says here, but if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, if he acts with premeditation, then you shall take him from my altar that he may die. He doesn't get to do that. And so Adonijah doesn't belong at the altar. If he had truly repented, he should have gone right to Solomon and confessed his wrong. And yet I love that Solomon doesn't start his reign like Adonijah planned to start his reign. Look at verse 51 to 52. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not a hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be in him, he shall die. Solomon says here, the word here, worthy man, it means a son of strength. It was the title for an elite soldier in Israel, a mighty man. If he proves himself to be a loyal servant from this point on, well, then I will honor his claim. He claims to be my servant, that he's asking me not to slay him, to give me a promise that, he won't kill, that I won't kill him. He says he's my servant. Well, then we'll give him an opportunity to, uh, to be my servant. I'll give him mercy. But if any kind of wrongdoing be found in him, he shall die. Solomon makes it clear, and everyone's hearing, that Adonijah does not get a third chance. Any hint of a future problem and his life will be forfeit because it will show that his claim here was a lie. So, having made his proclamation, Solomon sends those loyal to him to bring Adonijah to him unharmed. Verse 53, so King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and bowed himself to King Solomon, and Solomon said unto him, go to your home. You're dismissed, sir. And thus, we have the first peaceful transition of power in Israel, but it almost wasn't. And it won't always be that way. But for now, catastrophe is averted because two people had the courage to rouse a tired and weak king, and because a tired and weak king decided to receive correction and finish well. Those are character lessons for us. Is there one there that you need to heed? And then, of course, the most important thing, God kept his covenant with David, right? God kept his covenant with David. And God will keep his covenant with us too. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us that you always keep your promises and we can always rest in that. So Lord, we glorify you and we magnify your name and we choose to rest in your promises. To, when we read about other promises in your word, this is a promise you made to David, but Lord, you have given us precious promises. And so Lord, remind us as we read them throughout the week, as we're reading our Bible, that we might rest in them.
that we might not lean on our own understanding, but in everything we do, take you into account, acknowledge you, knowing that you'll make our path straight. And then, Lord, for any of my brothers or sisters tonight who maybe you've put your finger on something and you said, hey, this is a, this is a, a character trait that I want you to embrace, or this is a character trait I want you to leave behind. Lord, I pray as, as there may be some here tonight committing things to you that you would receive their surrender and their obedience and that you'd fill them with your spirit and empower them to act it out, to live in that commitment they make this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.